So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? You'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your belief. So what's a patriot like you to do? Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. Mention promo code Steve at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to two lines. Call 1-800-PATRIOT or go to patriotmobile.com. Mention promo code Steve. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. I'm excited because my voice isn't threatening to go out on me like it was last night. So I was still listed as questionable on the injury report because we don't have that probable thing in the NFL anymore. They got rid of that. So I was still listed as questionable. But for you fantasy broadcast people, you should have known I was practicing all week. So you should have known I was going to play today. All right. So you should have had me in your lineup. Okay. Would you go with homeopathy, voice exercises? How do you roll? Primal screaming like those tree hugging people that we heard on the show last week. You know what? Bourbon. I've I've got, um, well, since since you've outed me. Uh, I clicked my heels three times, and I said, there's no one like Cheeto Jesus, and it's a miracle, guys. Hallelujah. (laughs) Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So we're going to do something here tonight. Um, A couple of third-party candidates that you guys have asked us about more than any other. They're both going to be on the show tonight. Now, about uh, a week ago, we had Evan McMullen on the program. And so many of you have emailed me saying, hey, when are you going to put Evan McMullen on the program? That is clear. A lot of you missed it. So we don't do a lot of replays on this show. But in case you missed it, we are going to replay that interview. Because next hour, Daryl Castle, the Constitution Party's candidate for president, is going to join us. And so since those are the two third-party candidates I'm getting the most questions about, we figured we'd put them on back-to-back and let you guys, you know, do your sort of Pepsi challenge and, and draw your own conclusions, whether you think they're jokers or worth a while of votes or what have you. All right, so they're going to be the brunt of the program here tonight. We're also going to talk about why income inequality can actually be a good thing Yes, I know that's provocative, but the reality is we tend to get the best options and the most freedom and the most liberty when we don't try to guarantee an equality of outcomes. And we're going to talk about that later on in the show here this evening, too. Um, But I want to begin with um, something I saw break last night after we got off the air. A hotline is is sort of like um, Larry Sabato or Sabato's. I, I I just I don't know how it's pronounced, so I just use both pronunciations whenever his name comes up to cover all my bases. Uh, so it's kind of like his crystal ball, uh, the the Cook political report, the Rothenberg political report. I mean, these guys are horse race analysts, 
um, you know, that other politicos follow some of their projections and things of that nature. So they're not really in this for issue advocacy, most of them anyway. They just are pure, hard, blood, cold-blooded political scientist types. And Hotline is one of these entities. Last night after we got off the air, one of their reporters put out there last night that uh, he was speaking with a high-ranking GOP official who shared their internal polling with him. And keep in mind, the internal polling, unless they are just horse-piking you, and sometimes they'll do that, okay? So sometimes a campaign, when they, when they need a pick-me-up, they'll leak some sort of internal poll to try and change the narrative. Except you'll know that they're leaking it because they'll tell you. These, this is what our internal number, what our internal numbers say. Something like this means usually if if the source, if you won't tell you who's telling him who gave it to him, that means that this information is probably more objective. And campaigns internal polling is usually the best, unless they're just making it up to change the story narrative. And both sides do this every now and then. But the reason it's usually the best is because. Even the best professional pollsters, when they get a voter file, meaning when, when, when they take a look at likely voters who I'm going to screen to see who gets into my polling sample, even the best voter files are kind of like secondhand information. They're always operating a, an election behind. Because the political party's current voter files are sacred. Are, are sacred. I mean, that's, you know, you've heard in college sports, recruiting is the lifeblood of a program. The vote, I mean, the data, the voter data file for each political party is their lifeblood. So most even high ranking professional pollsters like a Monmouth or Ann Seltzer are operating a cycle behind in voter files because the current voter data, the parties hold on to that because that's their proprietary information. That's often why internal polling is usually more accurate because they've got the most up to date voter information available. Here was the internal data that Hotline reported was, was leaked to them by a senior GOP official last night. Essentially, Trump's numbers around the country are imploding. Numerous Republican candidates for Senate or House are running 10 to 15 points ahead of Trump in either their state or their district. That's incredible. That, that's just incredible. Here's what's even more incredible. Seven. They didn't identify the seven. I, I think I can give you a pretty good educated guess, and we'll go over that here in a minute. Seven U.S. Senate seats within the margin for error in the GOP's internal polling. Seven of them. Which means they're toss-ups. They, on election day, they don't know how they will go. Seven. So before I take a guess at what those seven seats are and why... Your thoughts, Todd, on just that information as a standalone? Well, it seems like somebody within... Is there any analysis other than somebody within the party or within the the, the campaign has just had enough and is uh, wants to troll his own candidate? I, I think what this is probably... It, I don't think it's a coincidence that this was leaked. This is my guess now. Educated guess. This gets gets put out there after we get off the air last night. What was the big political story while we were on the air last night? Trump was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, saying Paul Ryan doesn't want him to win. He's undermining me. He's looking ahead to 2020. Paul And the Wisconsin GOP is rebuking Trump, talking about how proud they are of Paul Ryan. So that night is when these numbers get leaked 
the hotline. Who do you think is going to have better internal polling? The people within the Republican Party, the people closest to Trump or the people closer to Paul Ryan? It will be the latter. Okay, it will be the latter. So my educated guess is an argument is trying to be made for cut him loose. Go Dole 96. This guy's an albatross. He's on his own and run our own campaign. And these numbers are being put out there in order to help create this media narrative. Well, then is the the particular numbers about the states, is that supposed to... You can look at it a couple of different ways. You, you, you try to scare people straight to get people active in those yes. particular races? You, you're, you're cotton picking right, Aaron. That's what you're doing. Yeah, that's uh, kind of what I was, I was going to yeah. go after as well. And I think this is another indication, if these numbers are true, that um, Trump has been... Um, has been judged uh, by the voters, and uh, he has been found wanting. Uh, but I think the voters are still unsure, which is why you would see it as a toss-up. They're still unsure whether they want to give Democrats complete control or whether they want to have some sort of check and balance upon Hillary Clinton. I think that's uh, indicated in that data as well. Could now, be. Now, if I had to guess, here are the seven states I would guess are within the margin for error in the U.S. Senate seats. Let me start with one that may surprise people, Arizona. McCain faced a somewhat competitive primary. That was a strong primary win for Donald Trump, but it's also a state whose polling has been negative for Trump the entire general election cycle. I could see John McCain being in a no man's land where the Trump vote in in Arizona is ticked off at him and won't vote for him. But the Democrats that like McCain will probably just go ahead and vote for a Democrat anyway. I could see him being caught between these two, um, these two magnets, if you will, between Democrat voters and angry Republican primary voters at him. Pennsylvania is an easy call. That's where you have Pat Toomey running in a state where Hillary has led, except for one poll, the entire general election campaign. Indiana. I think Evan Bayh was assumed, the former Democratic senator and governor, that he would just walk in there and grab that seat. He's run an awful campaign. An awful campaign. Essentially, he's been defined as Hillary Clinton, as a crony capitalist, corrupt uh, self-aggrandizer. But the problem is, Indiana's, for, for, for bias, Indiana's one of the reddest states in the country. And so maybe he could get away with that if this was a 50-state campaign, but it's not. It's a one-state campaign. And so I think that Bayh's weak candidacy has the Republicans with a chance to win that seat when a lot of people were writing it off once Bayh got in the race. Missouri is a weird state where it'll vote Repub- Democrat for Senate, like we just saw a couple of years ago. And so Roy Blunt's polling has been close there. Nevada, where Harry Reid's seat is open, I think that that race is very close. Kelly Ayotte, very similar to Pat Toomey, running against the Trump tidal wave in New Hampshire. And the other race that I think is within the margin for error is the Richard Byrd, North Carolina race, because it seems like polling in everything in North Carolina is within the margin for error. So those gentlemen are my guesses for the seven seats that Hotline says are within the MOE for the U.S. Senate. What's more important, holding on to the Senate or getting a major statement like a guy like John McCain losing because of his compromising fact? this this pad record what's more important don't tempt me aaron uh i would say get behind me satan (laughs) yeah i would say probably what's more important to answer your question is how joe miller does that's just me though that's an interesting point as well we'll look at that on election day you're listening to steve dace Listening to Steve Dace. 
Joining us now, Evan McMullen is here, independent candidate for president of the United States, and we want to welcome him to the show. Evan, uh, my name is Steve Dace. It is a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for joining us tonight here on the Salem Radio Network. How are you? Doing well, Steve. Thanks for having me. The pleasure's mine. So, Evan, let's begin um, by getting to know you a little bit before we, we dig into the issues. Who is Evan McMullen? Why are you doing this? Well, uh, I was born in Utah. I'm a former CIA officer. I served for 11 years with the agency, most of that overseas after 9-11 in, in the war zones until 2010. Uh, I spent some time in the private sector uh, and then worked in Congress as a senior advisor on national security issues. And then ultimately, I was the chief policy director for the House Republicans. So why I'm doing this, I'm doing this because uh, I saw in our two major party candidates a lack of representation for conser- true conservatism, and uh, and I believe this country needs better leadership. Uh, I believe it's time for a new generation of leaders in this country. I believe it's time for a new conservative movement. Uh, I question whether the Republican Party can be the vehicle for conservative for the conservative movement going forward, and and ultimately just someone needed to step up. And, and stand up for the foundational ideals on which our country was founded. And no one else is doing that, and I had hoped somebody else would, but lacking anyone else, uh, or, or you know, when I, it became clear that no one else was going to do it, uh, I decided that I would do it myself. That was another question I wanted to ask you, Evan. The timetable and whether you got into this too late to impact the outcome, I'm sure you've answered these questions a million times. So let me give you one million and one opportunities to answer it once more, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the timing is not ideal. I, I had hoped somebody would get in much earlier. I had hoped to, you know, p- perhaps a, a former presidential candidate with a national name ID and infrastructure and all that would get in. I got in at the last possible moment when I thought someone could have an impact on the race. Uh, and so it is an up, excuse me, it is, excuse me, an uphill battle. <coughs> but, uh, but we're, we're moving along and we're, <coughs> excuse me, bad time for a cough here. But, uh, you know, we're on over 30 ballots are registered as a ride in across, uh, across the country and, uh, and already polling ahead of Jill Stein and, uh, in some states doing quite well, in Utah and the Mountain West, we're pulling it, and I believe approaching real momentum. I have been where you're at on live radio, so I'm going to talk for a second and reset the conversation so you can grab a drink of water because I am sympathetic <laughs> with you. your current plight. Evan McMullen is here with us. I think this actually just happened to me on Friday night show the other night. Evan McMullen is here with us, the independent candidate for president here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Were you able to grab a little Marco Rubio T.O. there for a little agua? I think I'm okay. I All right. I'm okay. Thank All right. you. You got it. You used a phrase a few seconds, a few minutes ago, true conservatism. Can you define what you, what you think that means? Yeah. I mean, for me, con- true conservatism is, is commitment to the founding ideals on which this country was founded. And what am I talking about that? Uh, talking about? I'm talking about the notion that all men and women were created equal. I'm talking about the fact that we all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and with that comes a limited government that allows us to pursue happiness the way, uh, the way we, so, we see fit. Now, I'm talking about the, the, the reality that, that power should only come from the people, that the only power the government has is that which it derives from the people at the people's consent, and, and it remains accountable to the people. You know, I, I believe the, the ideals uh, or, or the, the separation and balance of powers enshrined in our Constitution, 
these are also uh, fundamental uh, uh, fundamental principles of our of our country, uh, and I believe true conservatism is committed to this. I think the challenge we have now is that the Republican nominee, who would generally support conservative principles, is somebody who doesn't really believe in the cause of liberty. He doesn't accept the notion that all men and women were created equal. And because of that, we see, and from that flow, a bunch of other problems, uh, whether it be separation of powers or, uh, you know, matters of life or uh, matters of, uh, uh, you know, other civil rights that we have that are enshrined in the Constitution. We do not have a candidate in Donald Trump who, uh, who will uphold those, I believe. And because of that, I believe that he presents a true threat to our democracy. Why is a vote for Evan McMullen not a wasted vote? Well, that's such an important question, Steve, but I'll say this. A lot of people sell us this idea that, that we must choose between the lesser of two evils when we vote. But a vote, I believe, is much more valuable than that. I believe it's an affirmative action, not simply uh, something that we use to choose the lesser of two evils. You know, I heard a pastor the other day say that, Look, if, if you're voting for the lesser of two evils, you're still voting for evil. And, and we've been thinking that way about our votes for a long time, and as a result of that, our standards for our leaders have been lowered. And as a result of our lower standards, we're getting lower, lower quality of leaders. We get leaders who don't have courage, leaders who care more about their reelection than, than they do about the cause of liberty and about the interest of the American people. You know, and I, I see that. I saw that in Congress while I was working there. You see it at play during this presidential cycle. You know, you, you see members of Congress, for example, abandoning their principles. Even some of the most principled there are, so we thought, have abandoned their principles. And, and enough is enough. We need to start using our voice in our democracy, which is our vote, to stand and, and promote and support and elect leaders who we actually want to see in office, who will actually have the courage and the principle to stand for what is right and get this country back on track. Do you have a plan for victory in this race? Well, I'll tell you what our goals are, Steve. Uh, our goals electorally, we would like to stop uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Now, if the race is very, very close, it may come down to one or two states. If that's the case, people in those states will have the opportunity to throw the election to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or block them both and send the election to the House of Representatives. We'd like to do the latter. So we're urging people, if, if the race is so close, then vote your conscience. And in that context, I hope to earn your vote and stop Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You can do that with your vote if the, if the election is that close. If the election isn't close and your vote and the outcome in your state isn't going to impact or have a decisive impact on the election, well, then there's no reason why you wouldn't then vote for somebody who you're actually supporting. And so in that case, I hope to earn people's votes. Um, you know, I also happen to believe that, you know, I, I'll be very candid, Steve. I have, I believe that if Hillary Clinton were elected, and I think she would, she would be an awful president, she would grow the size of government and deprive people of their individual liberties, but at least the House and the Senate Republicans would fight her. If Donald Trump is elected, my biggest fear is that because these members, these Republican members of Congress have shown that they're afraid to stand up to Trump, I don't think they would check Trump. Trump is a big government liberal, liberal from New York, just like Hillary Clinton, and he is going to be, he is going to grow the size of government to his own policies, say that. 
And I don't believe that House Republicans or certainly Senate Republicans are going to be able to stand up to Trump. So I'm, I'm concerned about that, and we'd like to stop Trump. Now, I would say also that what we're building here does not just have impact on this election. We are building a new conservative movement. Evan McMullen is our guest here, independent presidential candidate. Quickly, Evan, what's your website? People can check it out during the break if they'd like. EvanMcMullen.com. EvanMcMullen.com. Or when we come back, we'll talk issues with Evan McMullen, who's running for president here in a moment. Stay tuned. Listening to Steve Dace. This is the show your atheist college professor warned you about. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Salem Radio Network with Evan McMullen, independent candidate for president here. On the Steve Day Show. Evan, let's dig into some issues. Let me start. Uh, we'll take an easy one to start because this is right in your wheelhouse. Foreign policy. Sure. Dif- what would a President McMullen do that is different than what we've currently done and what is currently being proposed? Well, look, I think that America has an important role to play in the world. I believe that we need to return to a leadership role in the world. That's our natural place, and there's a reason for that. We are the most powerful and prosperous country on earth. There's, there's a reason why we've become that. It has to do with, in part, the fact that we're located on a piece of land on this earth that is choice above all others. Uh, we are isolated uh, by two great oceans and have other favorable circumstances that have allowed us to become very powerful. And, and so we need to ensure that the cause of liberty is, is strong here in the United States um, but we also need to ensure that uh, that, that uh, we that our liberty uh, and the cause of liberty more generally is not destroyed uh, from threats beyond our borders by threats beyond our borders. So um, we've got an important role to play. I think we've overstepped a little bit. I've said on the record that although I served in Iraq, I think that was not a wise decision for us, uh, the Iraq War. Um, but I do think that Obama has overcorrected and withdrawn U.S. leadership from the world and has left a power vacuum into which uh, destructive forces like Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad and, and, uh, and others, the Chinese government and the South China Sea, have, have, uh, have flowed into. Uh, I think, it, again, it is important that we, we return to our leadership role. I think it is a natural one for the United States and one that that the world is uh, that the world expects of us. Let's talk about two issues. Now I'm going to talk to Evan McMullen as a voter myself if you don't mind. Yeah. To me I have two litmus test issues that are sort of windows to the soul for me. Mm-hmm. I want to start with life. Mm-hmm. I mean you're quoting the founding document of the country uh, as Ronald Reagan once put it, if you don't have the right to life, pretty much pretty much any of your other rights are a moot point from that point forward. So what does it mean to be pro-life to Evan McMullen, or maybe you're not pro-life? How would you answer that and define it? Well, I'm definitely pro-life, and, and I think that this is a, a test of our humanity. I think it is the biggest test of our humanity. It's, it's something that, uh, that I'm deeply committed to. I think it's, uh, I, I personally view uh, abortion in the United States, you know, elective abortion, as an atrocity. And I believe we need to do more to uh, do whatever we can. And certainly, I'm in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. 
but I'm in favor of doing other things too to to limit the number of of uh, of abortions even you know before we're able to to overturn Roe v. Wade. And we've we've got to you know we, there are a million abortions in this country every year, and uh, it's it's a travesty. Religious liberty, that in many cases is really the first liberty, the opportunity to live as uh, as God has called me to live, uh, to freely worship him as he has uh, invited me to. That's what the first pilgrims were seeking uh, when they came to this country. Mm-hmm. Obviously, given your religious background, that was foundational to the founding of the state that is now known as Utah as well. We see unprecedented threats against this first freedom all over the country. So what would a president, President McMullen say about those threats? Well, I would echo what you just said, the fact that it is foundational. It's absolutely critical that we defend our religious liberty in this country, and it is under threat. Uh, you know, my, my ancestors came to the United States on my father's side in the 1600s uh, looking for religious liberty and economic opportunity, they, and they landed in Massachusetts, what we now know as Massachusetts. On my mother's side, they fled the Nazis and, and made their way to Philadelphia. You know where our founders, uh, of course, declared our our rights in this regard. Uh, so, so this is something that's you know in my DNA. And then, as you point out, my family later joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Mormon Church. Uh, then experienced uh, some, of course, persecution even here in our country, and fled west, seeking again greater religious liberty. So, this is something that I you know is is very personal for me and my family. And uh, and I would do uh, whatever I needed to do as president to defend our religious liberty. There's no doubt about it. I know we promised we were only going to keep you for 15 minutes, but if you've got time, I'm happy to keep you and talk about the economy. But if you have to go, I understand that as well. No, I, I would like that. Let's uh, let's keep talking. All right. What's, uh, what's the email address again if during this break people want to check it out? EvanMcMullen.com. EvanMcMullen.com. That's M-C-M-U-L-L-I-N, by the way, if you want to spell it correctly. So you go to the right website. Nowadays, if you get one letter wrong, who knows where you end up in the not not safe for work zone. All right, so EvanMcMullen.com is the website. We'll continue chatting with the independent candidate for president here in a moment. to Steve Dace. So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? You'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your beliefs. And there are progressive, radical, liberal phone companies spending tens of millions of dollars to remove conservative leaders from office and fight for liberal social change. So what's a patriot like you to do? Well, you can start by calling my friends at Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. You get the same quality service, competitive prices, and you get to help causes you believe in. Call Patriot Mobile right now at 800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code Steve at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to two lines. Call 1-800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code Steve. Oh, 
hunting rhinos into extinction. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here with independent candidate for president, Evan McMullen. Thanks, Evan, for hanging around. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. Hey, before we get into the economy, one more issue that is domestic but also ties into foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And that is our immigration issue. Mm-hmm. And and I think that this has been primarily argued from an economic perspective, I believe, for too long, um, as if you have the right to immigrate wherever you want. You don't have a right to go to, on other people's property whenever you want. No. Or or that, that, that these people are coming to do jobs that Americans won't do. Well, sure, they probably don't want to do it for the same price point that an illegal will do it for because their perspective on what's a living wage is going to be a lot different than somebody who was born and raised in America and has an American standard of living. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I think this is not discussed enough from a national security perspective. Is it a good idea, for example, to have a civ-like border when you have a movement that might represent only 10% of a religion of a billion people, but that's millions of people that at any point could just find some way to come across the border and who knows, and God only knows what they would do, like we've seen in France a couple of times, like we saw at San Bernardino, uh, like we saw at the Boston Marathon a couple of years ago. Obviously, this is your bailiwick. So how much of a national security threat is the border really, from your perspective as a guy who spent so much time in the CIA? Well, I think it's just basic that we've got to secure our our border with Mexico. You know, I, I just, you know, look... It, it, with with their Canadian border on the other side, we have a strong relationship with the Canadian intelligence and law enforcement agencies, and they have more control over their country than Mexico uh, than the Mexican authorities do over theirs. And I, I I don't say that with any disrespect. I just mean it's sort of a just a statement of fact. Uh, you know, I'm, and I'm I'm not looking for an adversarial relationship with the Mexicans either. But but look, the reality is we simply must secure our border with Mexico. And Donald Trump has promised a wall across the whole thing, and the Mexicans will pay for it and all that. I, I have a hard time believing that. But, but I do agree that we need to secure the border. The experts say that in some places we need a wall. In other places we need a double wall. And then in other places a wall wouldn't help, and we need electronic surveillance and drones and sensors and things like that. So we, we need to do whatever we need to do, whatever is required to secure our border. Uh, that's the first step. And then I do believe that we need to reform our immigration system uh, we need to make a number of reforms uh, to it so that it serves our national security purposes, so that it secures our, so that it serves our economic interests, and, and we have some social interests as well, some cultural social interests as well. But regardless, we need to make sure that our system is is aligned with our interests. And right now, I, I don't think it is. So let's go to the economy. Mm-hmm. Where do you think? We truly are, are as an economy, something like uh, 12 states in the union, government is the number one industry. Yeah. Um, is, is true capitalism even possible given the current size of government? Do we have to just put up with some level of crony capitalism because that's just the reality of the era in which we live? How do you see it, first of all, philosophically? Well, I think I don't think we have to accept that. And in fact, I think we have to fight against it. Crony capitalism. Crony capitalism cuts off innovation. I've seen it at work myself uh, when I was the chief policy director with the House Republicans. Uh, frankly, I saw that the Republicans aligned themselves uh, too closely with uh, with major corporations who, 
for example, could handle certain regulations that small and medium-sized enterprises couldn't. And I, I tell people a story one time of a, a lobbyist who came in representing some big corporations, and he handed me a draft bill he and his colleagues had written, and he asked for me to advance it. And I read the bill and realized that it was going to put regulations, pretty onerous ones, on his own industry. And I thought, well, why would he want that? And he had some reason that didn't make sense. But the more I thought about it, the more I understood what he was doing. He was trying to put in place regulations that his companies, his big clients would be able to handle, but the small and medium-sized players in the industry who are not his clients would not be able to handle. And that is that is emblematic of the challenges we face. And we have... I think I believe the Republican Party has drifted in, a, in an unhealthy uh, innovation uh, competition strangling direction, and uh, and we've got to open up the economy, open up our markets, so that more people have access to them, so that there's more competition, so that there's more innovation, so that we have more growth, so that our national security is stronger, so that people have higher paying jobs, and and all kinds of benefits uh, flow uh, from there. But that's what I think we need to do. How does the tax code play into that? Well, we've got to lower corporate taxes for sure so that corporations have more money to invest in their people and in equipment that makes people more productive and therefore, you know, more able to collect higher wages. Uh, We also need to, I believe, lower the individual tax rates, simplify the tax code. Uh, but, but But we've also got to shrink the size of government in order to do that. And that's something that the Democrats and the Republicans have been complicit in growing the size of government, but the Democrats especially. I don't think they've ever seen an opportunity to spend more money at the federal government level that they've turned down. It's just really incredible. At least that's what I've seen. So I've got two minutes left. I want to give you the balance of that time. First of all, what would be the first dent you would make in limiting or reducing the size and scope of government? And and again, make a final case, if you will, to our audience why a vote for Evan McMullen is a worthwhile vote. Okay, well, I'll say what I would do to limit the size of government. First and foremost, we've got to reform entitlements. If we do not reform entitlements in 10 years, they plus uh, interest on our national debt, which is uh, $19.5 trillion now, adding $2.4 billion a day. If we do nothing, then we, in 10 years, entitlements and interest will consume 78% of our budget. Uh, At that point, interest alone on our national debt, which again is driven mostly by entitlements, uh, will be over $100 billion more than what we're spending on defense. It'll be over 20 times what we're spending on on science and technology and space exploration, and seven or eight times what we spend on transportation and education. I mean, it's totally out of control. We need to make responsible reforms to entitlements. They keep our obligations to current retirees and people like my parents who are retiring soon. Uh, but for people like me who are going to be in the workforce for some additional decades, uh, we need to make some reforms and phase them in gradually so that those programs are on a sustainable path and so that they're, uh, you know, they're not insolvent and therefore sucking dollars away from the rest of the budget in the American taxpayer. One more time, Evan. What's the website? EvanMcMullen.com. It's been a pleasure having you with us, and regardless of whether people agree or disagree, to step up and put yourself out there I think is admirable, uh, and we do appreciate it. God bless you, man. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Steve. All right, we'll have some reaction to what you just heard here next. You're listening to Steve Dace.
show is dedicated to bacon every day. The Steve Day Show. All right, so when we originally had this interview with Evan McMullen, we had you guys share your thoughts, and we ran out of time, and I didn't get a chance to share mine. That's I did right. tweet out some thoughts, but we didn't talk about them on the air. The thought that I had when this interview first ran about a week ago is um, seemed like a genuinely sincere, decent person. And um, in, in, a, in another election, his reserved nature would be seen as a negative. You're laughing, Todd? This has a feel of damning with faint praise no, right no, no, now. No, 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 no. It's not going to be faint praise, I promise. Although I know I usually set things up like that, but no. There, there is no, the hammer's not about to drop, okay? However, in this election, res, reserved doesn't seem boring. Given, a, it, seems re- sane. it seems reassuring, yeah. right? I mean, in, in, if in, a, in a normal election, reserved would be, gosh, he seems like a great guy, but it just doesn't do it for me. But in this, in in the, in the, are you sure there's we really need more cowbell election? Reserved seems not boring, but reassuring. Now, at the when we first aired this interview a week ago, my number one criticism was get outside of the traditional GOP talking points on general governing vision. And if you're going to say stuff like he said here on this show that we need a new party, a new conservative movement, then go bold, go big or go home. I mean, if you're going to go, if you're going to say we need to change the paradigm, then change the paradigm. Let, let's let, let's let's have because ultimately, what will draw people to a new paradigm? I hate to say this, will not just be um, the the people running it are just more decent and better human beings. It won't work. You'll draw, you'll draw some bees with that kind of honey, but, but this is, uh, in, in politics, in the end, people are going to be like, well, what's in this for me? I'm glad you're a nice guy, but what's in this for me? So, so come up with some policy ideas that are more what's in this for me. Now, what has happened in the week or so since we originally ran this interview is he has been out there more specifically talking about public policy. Uh, they just did a big town hall. I think it was either last night or on Sunday night, talking a lot about policies involving um, poverty, race, and those sorts of things in America. Uh, so we're getting more of that. But if I were advising advising Evan McMullen, he can win Utah. And if he can win Utah, I think he can win in Idaho. And I think what Bob Vanderplot said last night is true. When polls start showing that the guy that, you, that you'd rather vote for, you didn't think could win, it looks like he could win, a lot of people start deciding, you know what, I'm going to vote for him. I think it, my vote will actually make, it, make a statement. This would be the first time in almost 50 years someone, it would be, someone other than a Republican or Democrat won an electoral college vote. But I think what McMullen needs to close that sale is a populist issue beyond general dissatisfaction with Hillary and Trump. And I and and by the way if I were advising him for future the future Evan McMullen for US Senate campaign that's likely coming when Orrin Hatch retires, I'd be thinking of an issue that I could use to run on for US Senate that I that would define me that I would be known for going forward. You're listening to Steve Dace.
you are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here on a Tuesday night on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Well, we are joined now by somebody that uh, has been requested to be on this show by several of you for the last several months. He is the Constitution Party's nominee for president of the United States, and his name is Daryl Castle, and we want to welcome him to the program tonight. Daryl, my name is Steve Dace. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let me start, first of all, with the Constitution Party. Who are you? Well, we're a party that uh, was formed in 1992 around a, uh, a central theme, and that theme was that we believe that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution is still valid today and can still be intellectually defended to the nation. So we set out to, to form a party based on that, and uh, that's still what we're about today. Give us, so we're going on about 25 years now, give us sort of the, the size, scope of how your party has grown since then, access you have to the electorate, etc. Well, uh, to to start out with your the latter part of your question, right now uh, I'm on the ballot in 24 states by name, and in I think 23 other states I'm registered as a write-in candidate. But uh, we uh, this is the seventh presidential election uh, that we've been involved in since the party's founding, and uh, I've been around for all of them. So uh, the party has has evolved and changed over the years. The the five gentlemen who were involved in the original founding of the party, uh, four of them are dead. So I'm kind of the last man standing in that that regard. But uh, so so we have changed. And uh, one election uh, we're up, one we're down. This is an election offers a um, a great opportunity for us. Uh, because of, uh, for obvious reasons, because so many people are are dissatisfied with both of the major party candidates, so we really feel like this election uh, we will do quite well. Let me start with that then. If indeed there is, and I agree with you, unprecedented dis- dissatisfaction with the two major party candidates. Given the age of your of your party, I can understand, for example, why somebody like Evan McMullen, who got such a late start, has been struggling to get ballot access. How come you guys are on not even half the ballots around the country by name, then? Well, the reason for that is because uh, of the difficulty in ballot access, which ballot access is controlled in all 50 states by, by Democrats and Republicans and in the state legislatures of all 50 states, and they, they control... Uh, how many signatures you have to get, how many valid signatures you have to get to have access to their ballots. And not only do they control the rules, but they decide uh, how the rules are, are decided. I mean, they vet the signatures. They tell you 
which signatures are good and which are not. And uh, for example, in in Ohio, we needed five thousand good signatures, so we turned in I think eighty nine hundred, and and uh, they only approved thirty five hundred or something like that of them. So uh, something like five thousand of our signatures were not uh, counted as good. So. Uh, it is very difficult. Now, you, you can only get on by having a lot of money, uh, and there are certain groups that have more than we do. Uh, the Libertarians and the Greens would be two obvious examples who who have uh, far more access to the ballot than we do this year. The the money to pay paid uh, sub, uh, 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 signature gatherers simply wasn't there for us. But uh, if you think about that whole concept, paid signature gatherers, the idea of getting the signatures is supposed to indicate some uh, modicum of support for mm-hmm. your party, but mm-hmm. when you pay someone $3 a signature, uh, in essence, a person with money, uh, a person like Rocky De La Fuente, who, uh, for example, who has some money uh, and has no one else but him, could get access to the ballot by simply buying it. So access to the ballot is for sale, and uh, and, and we don't have enough money right now to purchase it. That's what it comes down to. You said you've been in the Constitution Party from the very beginning. Did I hear you correct on that, Daryl? Yes, uh, that is correct. Yes. So so why were you there from the ground floor? Well, I uh, um, had a long journey to get there, but I met a gentleman through a mutual friend named Howard Phillips, and mm-hmm. uh, Howard uh, told me that he was trying to to start a new party. He had originally had asked me uh, who I was going to vote for that year. That would have been late 1991, I guess, in the upcoming 92 election. And I said, I, you know, Howard, I, I don't think I'm going to vote this time. And he was trying to start a new party, so uh, we started working on it. And, and his theory was that the Democrats and Republicans would would never, ever take the nation where we thought it should go. And so we wanted to uh, to offer them uh, another option. We were younger and uh, more naive then, uh, and and some of those people that we were trying to oppose were stronger and more clever than we than we thought at first, I suppose. But uh, that was why we formed the party, or what Howard's idea about the party was, and we put it together with with great enthusiasm and. Uh, those of us surviving have worked uh, hard ever since. What reaction are you guys getting this election compared to others? Well, I would say that it's better this time than it's ever been before. Uh, for one reason, uh, a, a very big reason, is because that uh, Mr. Trump uh, uh, has a lot of people in the Republican Party who have left him. Uh, those who supported uh Ted Cruz, for example, even though Mr. Cruz has come back to Trump, uh, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them, uh, when he first lost the Indiana primary and dropped out of the race, many of them uh, were looking for somebody, and they found me and have been with me ever since. So that has been a a great blessing, a tremendous source of uh, of younger people, more enthusiastic people, perhaps, than what... Uh, I had expected, so I, I you know, I, that's been greatly encouraging. What is your political background, Daryl? Well, that's 
that's it. That's my political background. I, I haven't been a member of any party except uh, the Constitution Party. I I spent uh, uh, several years kind of, uh, I suppose you could say, apolitical, and it wasn't until I uh, I met uh, Mr. Phillips that I I started to become active in politics. We'll get to where you are at on the issues here momentarily, but what qualifies you to be president of the United States, to to actually be able to do the job? It, as you know, it's more than philosopher or theologian in chief, but it is the it's the most pressurized management position in all of the world. So so what about your background qualifies you to actually regardless of of whether people agree with your stances on the issues or not, but to actually perform the task of being president? Well, that's a very fair question, Steve. And, uh, you know, I would say that obviously any experience I have is going to be on a much smaller scale than what uh, the president of the United States would need. But so is anyone else, Uh, even Mr. Trump, who's run vast businesses. uh, They don't compare with the uh, pressures of having uh, that in your hands, but I have run businesses. I've uh, operated uh, law offices around the country at one time uh, before I scaled back. I, I had about 60 families that, that depended on me every week for a living that I had to make payroll. I mean, I, I know what it's like to to struggle week by week to uh, to earn enough money to pay those people. I know what it's like when you're at that you know, gut-riching moment when you think, am I going to make it this week or or not? Uh, so that's one thing. I mean, I've, uh, I'm a military veteran, which neither of the two major candidates can say. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's important. I understand uh, how military people think, once again, on a much lower scale than, than uh, Joint Chiefs level, obviously. But I, I do have a great appreciation for the military, having served in it. And uh, I've been a lawyer for, I guess, 37 years now. I know what it's like to uh, to run my own law firm, to uh, to hire people, to fire people. Uh, those are some things I would use to answer your question. And uh, I would uh, love to have the opportunity to uh, to put that experience to work. More with Daryl Castle, presidential nominee for the Constitution Party, here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. There's left, there's right, and then there's right. You've come to the right place. It's the Steve Day Show. Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network. Daryl Castle is with us. He is the Constitution Party's nominee for president of the United States. You've mentioned your legal experience for the last uh, a couple of times already in this interview. What kind of law was your specialty? Well, I'm still an active practicing attorney, but uh, my firm uh, handles only uh, personal injury and uh, bankruptcy. 
what do you would you say to somebody who thinks that though given the reputations of those areas of the law which i'm sure you're well aware of that there might be a direct conflict between those reputations and a strict constitutional adherence in political well, office i would say that those people are uh, are very wrong um, i have um um for 37 years have represented the interest of the uh, weak and helpless against those of the rich and powerful. I'm very proud of what I've accomplished in doing that. So, no, I, I don't think that uh, that would be true at all in my case. Let's get to the issues, Daryl. And let's start with what I think is a really big one. Are we a people still capable of being a constitutional republic? Um, once again, that's a very good question, and uh, unfortunately, it's open to uh, to discussion. Uh, that that is not a uh, that is not a question that that uh, I, I can just give you a snap answer and say yes. Uh, but uh, uh, I I would like the opportunity to try to lead this country to that, but uh, right now it's not there and. My uh, problem, my fear, is that uh, with each succeeding election, uh, we're drifting further and further, um, like the ship of state floating out to sea, where people people can't see land anymore. But uh, worse than that, they no longer remember that there ever was land. Uh, I, I'm disturbed by many of the young people I talk to. Uh, there are many different, obviously. I talk to all kinds, but uh, the, these people that we refer to today as millennials, I've met a few who who just don't seem to care. It doesn't bother them that we're, we're not a constitutional republic anymore. It doesn't bother them that uh, the, the whole world has been turned upside down because they don't really remember anything else. Uh, they were not born uh, prior to Roe versus Wade. They were not born prior to to uh, George H.W. Bush or Bill Clinton even. Uh, these are mid-80s to late-80s uh, aged people, uh, mid-80s, 1980s birth date to late-1980s. And I, I'm very disturbed by the fact that they're, the, the things that disturb me do not disturb them, let me put it that way. So uh, it's certainly something that's open to question. And the reason I ask that is because there is a practical responsibility to govern if somebody like you were to be elected. So I'm wondering, and I know this is a debate that um, uh, the late Howard Phillips had with the conservative movement for many years, which is one of the reasons that led him to found your party in the first place. It's the classic debate between incrementalism and going for the whole enchilada But in this case, what you represent, and I typically fall on the grounds of, I think most of what conservatism defines as incrementalism is actually losing slower. It's it's not incrementalism. You know, to me, incrementalism is the old Hank Stram NFL films are matriculating the ball down the field, getting first downs on our way to the end zone. Most of conservatism is defined incrementalism as, wow, we thought that they were going to get all 99 yards on that last pass, but we tackled them to one yard line, so win. Uh, But in, in, in your case... What you guys want to do is such a dramatic paradigm shift to the way the country is currently governed. Is it sustainable to literally scrap this all in one fell swoop of a term, or would we have to see phase-outs of the welfare state, Daryl? Well, once again, you've uh, you've put your finger on the very the very heart of the problem. 
Uh, I was uh, just reading an article today by uh, an economic writer that I admire and subscribe to, and I noted to my wife that he, uh, uh, what he proposes is not a, a complete turning upside down of the system like I propose, but he proposes to, to tinker with the system that's already there to try to make it better, to try to make it uh, work more efficiently. And I think in some in some instances, that's what Mr. Trump propose, proposes. I, in listening to the last debate, I heard uh, some of the things he, uh, he was saying about what he hoped to do, and he seems to be saying uh, that he can do what uh, Hillary Clinton can do, except better. He would be better at it. He would be more efficient at the same thing. So uh, you're right in that what I propose is a complete turning upside down of the system. And my conclusion is that, uh, uh, no, I, I honestly, I do not think, I think there are so many dependent people out there right now that uh, I, I would not and could not on the day of my inauguration say, okay, welfare is over. But that's not what I'm proposing. Uh, you know, even Bill Clinton, if you remember back, uh, had a gradual reformation of the welfare system. He, he took a lot of uh, uh, debt off the table, off the deficit, by, by restructuring it. And uh, I do think that uh, that has to be done gradually simply because there are too many dependent people out there to just cut them off. Mm-hmm. So walk us through. What would that look like? What would the phase-out of, of, of America's vast behemoth of a welfare state. What would that look like, Daryl? Well, I mean, uh, that is, that's, that's a, a tough one, but I would, uh, I would say that uh, if you look back at the Clinton years, he upset a lot of people in his, own, uh, in his own party by proposing to make changes in the uh, welfare or establishment uh, uh, entitlement programs, if you want to call them that. But uh, and now fast forward to to President Obama, even George uh, W. Bush, who who added a four hundred million dollar uh, prescription drug uh, program to all of it, which turns out obviously now to be a lot more than that. But uh, President Obama has gone out actively seeking people to have on food stamps, actually advertising for people, uh, and I've read. Uh, and done some study in that area, and uh, the people who who do this and who um, who look for people to 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 get more and more food stamps, to have more and more people on the rolls, uh, seem to think that that's actually good for the economy. You know, because people are out uh, spending their food stamps at the grocery store and so forth, so that that makes it good for the economy. But there are things like that that can be uh, reformed immediately. And uh, uh, a gradual uh, uh, reduction in dependence. It is obvious that the Democratic Party, uh, at least, uh, has sought for many years to create more dependency in the American people, to make them more dependent on government. So I would endeavor, as best I could, to to reduce that dependency and make people more uh, more independent, more able to to provide for themselves. And, of course, uh, uh, if you're going to do that, uh, there's going to have to be places for people to work. So um, uh, that would also uh, factor into it. It's an overall program, I guess you could say, not simply one thing. We'll continue our conversation tonight with Daryl Castle, Constitution Party nominee for president, in a moment. 
listening to Steve Dace. When you're upsetting everyone, you know you're doing it right. You are human tennis elbow. You are a pizza burn on the roof of the world's mouth. It's Steve Dace. Here on the Steve Day Show, Daryl Castle is the Constitution Party's nominee for President of the United States. He's our guest here tonight on the Salem Radio Network. Can I can I make a suggestion to this conversation? Would you mind? Sure, absolutely. I I think it is there. There is standing um, against um, standing in the gap against the prevailing winds of a culture, um, and then there is tilting at windmills and urinating into the wind so it gets back on you. And and I wonder if one way to avoid doing the latter, so instead you're doing the former, is to attack the welfare state from the supply side instead of the demand side. And here's how I would suggest doing so. I would get rid of, Daryl, I would get rid of paycheck withholding. I would force Americans to take a look at how much they actually earn what the difference would be in um, in the consumer price index, in the value of their money, if instead of having pre-taxed dollars, um, they instead maximize their consumer purchasing power by putting the money they earn right back into the system with it, um, and so that the, so government doesn't have a chance to cheapen its value before it ever actually makes it into the economy in the first place, and then that would also force people to actually write the check for what the state believes they owe them so that they would have to be confronted with what the costs of this monstrosity truly are. Because I've got a pretty good idea, knowing human nature as I do, that if you forced people to truly under, to truly write that money out for themselves, to, to once own something that belonged to them and then, have it, then having watched it be taken away, as opposed to I don't even look at the gross in my paycheck, I just look at the net and assume that money was never there in the first place. That is how you can create a massive paradigm shift when people are forced to come to grips with what this is really costing them. Well, that is a, uh, an excellent idea. It is part of my uh, overall economic program as i said it's not simply one thing but an overall program and that's what i would hope would work but yes you uh you are right about that and uh you do in in order to enact what you're talking about you do have to consider um the 47 or 48 percent uh something like that of people right now who are dependent and uh, the large numbers of people who are out of work or at least underemployed and uh, and struggling. I, I see them every day. So uh, it would be effective to those people who are actually working and earning an income, yes. Um, but all those who are dependent on those people who are actively working and earning an income is a whole other thing. You're right, but obviously you can want and desire and demand all you want, but someone still has to write the check for it. And right now what we have is is the is the is the demand side has all of the political leverage. See, cuz Daryl, I don't believe I don't, you know what? I and I'd like to get your take on this. I don't believe we're a nation of laws. We should be, but I don't think we are. And I don't think we've ever been. 
Okay, I mean, the same men who wrote all men are created equal, several of them, not nearly all of them, but several of them went home to their slaves who they didn't treat as equal when they got done. So we are not a nation of laws. We are a nation of political will. Always have been. We have always been a nation of political will. Right now, the political will exists entirely on the demand side. We've got to reassert that uh, will from the supply side. And I can't think of a way that will that will that will create that without forcing people to confront what the cost of supplying this demand really and truly is. Well, you you make sense, Steve. I, I can't argue with what you're saying, especially about uh, nation of laws, uh, especially now uh, the rule of law. Simply uh, the the idea that uh, no one is. Uh, uh, above the law's sanction or beneath its protection, that certainly doesn't exist anymore. And it's a cons- cause of great concern for me. But yes, political will, I mean, I, I can't argue with what you're saying. We are spending the bulk of this hour tonight here on the Steve Day Show with Daryl Castle. He is the Constitution Party's nominee for President of the United States. When we come back, we're going to get to morality, uh, both his own, but also how do you govern with it? And what role does government have or does government play in the institution or protection of morality? What's the Constitution have to say about that? We'll discuss that and more with Darrell Castle in a moment. to Steve Dace. Helping to define the modern-day New Age America. We're all kind of crazy town banana pants. It's Steve Dace. One final time with Daryl Castle, the Constitution Party's nominee for President of the United States. Where do where does morality fit in with your platform? I like to think. Uh, I mean, it's, it's my version of me, uh, 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 morality uh, comes from Christianity. That's what I am. Uh, we used to have a concept. Uh, Christian morality was not a dirty word, uh, but I suppose now it is to too many people, but not to me. That's still where I come from. And, um, you know, the idea of morality to to certain members of the Democratic Party and and the idea of morality to me are two different things. You know, I can talk to to some of my uh, Democrat friends. They would refer to themselves as progressive. And and they think they equate morality with um, uh, the government providing, as they put it, providing for poor people. Uh, but I equate that as theft because uh, the example I would give them is, uh, you know, if my neighbor 
broke into my house and stole a lot of my property and took the money and distributed it to the poor, I'd be really upset about that. Mm -hmm. But when the government does essentially the same thing, we call it morality. I like the fact that when I asked when I asked you where morality fit in, you personalized it first and foremost. But now let's publicize it. How do you govern along those lines? Uh, do you think um, do you think it is government's role uh, to protect life or simply to not promote abortion? Do you think it's government's role to uh, to promote a certain definition of marriage? Or that's really not a role government should have in the marriage business at all, and on down the line. That, wh- wh- well, where, where do you stand on that? Let me answer your questions uh, specifically. I, I think it's government's role to protect life. Uh, if we think the Constitution uh, is government, if we believe it's what it says it is, the supreme law of the land, you know, the Fifth Amendment says no person may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process, and the Fourteenth Amendment using the same language applies that to the state. So I, I take the position that it's a uh, it's a federal role to protect life. And on the other, uh, but uh, also along those lines, uh, a president, as Teddy Roosevelt used to say, has a bully pulpit, and he can use that to set an example. My, uh, my daughter's uh, school teacher, when she was in high school, used to have a sign in her classroom that said, uh, you know, you, no one is without merit. You can always serve as a bad example. Um, uh, the president should serve as a good example, not a bad example. I mean, he is an example for people, regardless of which side of that equation he falls on. So, you know, it would be my uh, strong desire to be a good example. And... Uh, as for uh, as for marriage, for for same sex marriage, uh, you know, I take the position that uh, uh, people should not have to go to the government to buy a license for whatever relationship they want to be in. As a Christian, I'm obviously uh, very much opposed to it. In fact, my my understanding of Christianity is that uh, there's no such thing as same sex marriage because God defines marriage uh, uh, in His own way, and that's not it. But at the same time, uh, as president, the person could, uh, you know, uh, the the government, uh, if there were no financial incentives to it, uh, it would be none of the government's business. But still, even having said that, uh, I would hope to to serve as an example. Uh, I forget the word you used to describe it, but an example of what, uh, what morality is supposed to be. I've got about a minute left. Daryl, um, make your case to our audience. Voting for you is not a wasted vote, and then let them know how they can learn more about your campaign. Well, what I do, uh, Steve, when, when, when I do that for people, when people ask me that question, uh, I say, uh, you know, sometimes people have an overinflated view of their own significance when you talk about wasted vote. I mean, there will be about 130 million votes cast. Uh, uh, is yours really that meaningful uh, that you think the election is going to sway with what you do? But, but number two, ask yourself a second question. That is, let's say that it, that was the case, which is the way I like to do it. I, I mean, when I vote, I like to approach it like this. Uh, of all the candidates out there, I'm going to cast a vote. And let me pretend that my vote is the deciding one. In other words, the election is exactly even until I vote. And when I vote, that person will become president. My vote will actually elect the person I'm voting for, President of the United States. Who do I vote for? Um, I mean, do you pre- prefer Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, 
Daryl Castle or one of the other uh, uh, party candidates. So that puts it in a different perspective for people. But uh, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a matter of philosophy for a person. He has to decide for himself uh, whether his conscience, his vote, his his assent. You're giving an assent to that person. Yes, I want you to be president. Whether that means anything to him or whether it doesn't. Now, uh, how people can reach me? My my campaign website is uh, castle2016.com. And uh, people can reach me, uh, they can reach my campaign, uh, you know, if they want to make a suggestion, as many people are quick to do, or they want to uh, to ask a question or anything like that, they can email my campaign manager, and that would be Joan, J-O-A-N, at castle2016.com. Daryl Castle, Constitution Party nominee for president. Daryl, thanks for joining us tonight, and appreciate the conversation. Good luck to you, brother. God bless. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. That was Daryl Castle. He is the Constitution Party's candidate for president in 2016. By the way, if you want to learn more about the Constitution Party, you want to see their platform for yourself, um, maybe you want to get involved, you want to take a look at their ballot access, just go to constitutionparty.com. That's constitutionparty.com. And You've now had a chance in both of these hours. We replayed the earlier interview we did with Evan McMullen in hour one. And you just heard the interview we did with Daryl Castle here throughout the bulk of hour two. So since those are the two that uh, most of you have asked me about, now you've got a chance to sort of compare and contrast them back to back. And we'll have some of our own comments on what Daryl Castle had to say in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Liberals seem to have a tough time handling so much truth all in one place. Stop! 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 It's the Steve Day Show. All right, let's get some reaction, snap judgment time to what we just heard from Daryl Castle. Todd, what'd you think? Sounds like a uh, good and decent man, uh, the kind of guy you'd like to give a shot uh, as governor somewhere. But in listening to him, here's my standard right now, and I'm st- I, I do plan on going with him as Judge Roy Moore as a write-in, because that guy, both in word and deed, clearly gets the machinations of uh, courts run wild, of government run wild, and he knows what to look for. And so he knows exactly when to hold them and when to fold them. It, it's clear that he is a very, very rare beer he, breed. And this is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama. We're talking about President of the United States. If we don't have a man with the resolve and the wherewithal of Judge Roy Moore... It's going to be tough. I know my standard is high, but that that's what we need. And I, I'm not saying it's not there. I don't know. First time I've ever heard this guy speak. But I didn't get anything close to a Judge Roy Moore vibe in terms of being 
willing to do what must be done. So your position is, if I'm going to make a symbolic vote, then I might as well put the... Go big or go home. Yeah, put the best symbol I can come up with. Your thoughts on Daryl Castle, Aaron? Um, I I agree with Todd. He sounds like a a good and decent man um, that... um, you know he's he's got a lot of the right um a right right stances overall i i would like to hear a few more specifics on some of the issues that you brought up specifically on welfare reform he had some broad ideas um but i'd like to hear more specifics um but overall again he's a, he's a decent guy and i and i appreciate what the constitution stands for but it seems like he's looking at issues and coming at them from the way things should be without taking into account the way things are right now and tailoring his message for the way things are. And I'm talking about the environment that we're in right now, kind of dovetailing off of what Todd said about somebody who understands the machinations of what the Supreme Court is or what the court system is doing, somebody who understands the threat, um, the, the, the uh, imminent threat of, of some of the first liberties um, in this country. I, I just think that this is kind of a, a guy that seems like he's... Uh, maybe from a different time and just wanting to cu- go back to that time. That's that's my gut. Well, yeah. Well, he is. He's wanting to go back to a time when, when the, the original meaning of the Constitution had meaning. But to, to further your point, when you say stuff like, you know, the government should be in the marriage business, well, I, I would agree with that. But the problem is that it is. And it has been for about 150 years. And so now it's embedded in our tax code and jurisprudence. I mean, it's not just as simple as, you know, the government's not going to issue marriage licenses anymore because so much of how we govern depends on the definition of marriage. In many respects, I, I thought he had the same issues as Evan McMullen. I liked his decency. But but I think he all, we, there needs to be more practical policy ideas for how we actually get to that constitutional place again. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Coming up later in this hour, you know, income inequality may be underrated. We'll talk about that. Uh, but first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. That time of the night when our producer Aaron grabs the reins, turns it around on us, teaches us the age-old lesson that it ain't no fun when the rabbit's got the gun. This is three questions. 
Thank you, Steve. Uh, question one. I had no idea that uh, you were going to talk about this towards the end of hour one, but I wanted to get your take on it and uh, let you expand on it a little bit. If Evan McMullen uh, wins in Utah and maybe even Idaho this November, if you were advisor, uh, if you were his advisor, what would you tell him to do over the course of the next few years? I think that um, you become a very potent political brand. And the more you act like it, the more potent your political brand will be. You have cracked a code. Um, you have done something that a lot of people on both sides have wanted to do to prove a point, And you did it. And you did it with zero name ID to start. Uh, you did it with so many deadlines either about to expire or already expire to even get on the ballot across the country. Um, and I would, and, and, and so to me, this is a chance to brand him as, as, as essentially the new Ted Cruz. He took on the two-party system head-on. Now, from what I've heard from the two of them on the issues, we, I think we would be more in line with Ted Cruz than, mm -hmm. than Evan McMullen. But, but this is where you don't, don't go against your brand. And for the last month and a half, we've been watching Ted Cruz go against his own brand. It's been painful. And it's been painful to watch. You know, there's this perception out there that Ted Cruz, and maybe we helped to drive it, if so, it was not intentional. But there's this perception amongst our lot of, a lot of our people that Ted Cruz is a lot better U.S. Senator than Rand Paul. Their liberty scores are virtually identical. Actually, Mike Lee's better than both. But why does that perception exist? Because when it came to actually challenging the existing paradigm for the last year and a half, who stood up, Rand Paul or Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz, not Rand Paul. Even though their votes are virtual, their voting records are virtually indistinguishable. Like one guy's at 97 and the other guy's at 93, guys. That's virtually indistinguishable. You had a nitpick on that. But Rand's unwillingness to challenge the paradigm of the existing system created this perception. Meanwhile, Ted's up there calling McConnell a liar and D.C. cartel, make D.C. listen, right? That altered the perception. So when you were to actually look at their positions on the issues, you would find probably many people in an audience like ours would find their positions on the issues more in line with Ted Cruz's than Evan McMullen's. From what I've seen so far from Evan, I like a lot of what he says, but, but, but a lot of the stuff he says, he also says like just about any mm -hmm. other generic Republican has said it. But the perception of if he's the guy that cracks the code, he wins, an, he wins a single electoral college vote on November the 8th. People aren't going to look at the nuances of their records on the issues, Todd. They're going to go by the perception. And the perception will be that Evan McMullen is now the, white sh the shining white knight challenge to the system that Ted Cruz used to be, just as Ted Cruz became the challenge to the system a lot of people who were hoping Rand Paul was going to turn out to be. Agree or disagree? No, I agree. I think he needs to do a really good job of combining principle and pragmatism. What was it with, with Donald Trump and family leave, extending family leave, and your argument, rightly so, is that no matter what you do, the left is going to come behind mm -hmm. you and just say, you're a jerk for not giving more. You need to flip that script, and you need to put, uh, you, you need to sense the populist impulse, match that up with the principles of your party. There is a hierarchy of truth that we do believe in. Some are more important than others. But if you're going to break through, you have to seize moments. At which issue, at which time, 
what buttons can you push to make that happen, to start cracking this thing and getting going in a different direction. So you need to get good at combining principle and pragmatism and putting the progressives on the defensive for once. Agreed. And I think these two things that I'm about to mention are one and the same. Uh, you know, don't go against your brand, uh, but whatever you do, stay the heck away from the Republican Party. And we heard early on in that interview with Evan McMullen that uh, he believes he's he's trying to start um, kind of a new platform or a new movement uh, for conservatives or for conservatives around the country. So stay away from the Republican Party. Don't cozy up to them. And if you do run for Senate, I mean, this is a huge opportunity for you and for the principles you are espousing right now. Question two, what's the question every self-identifying Christian should be asking themselves right now? Wow. Um, and I'm talking about American uh, Christians in America. Well, I think it's the same question for Christians everywhere. Um, will I be found faithful? Did I honor my Lord? Will I hear, well done, good and faithful servant? I, I, I think it's the same for believers in any time, in any age, and in any place or era, Todd. Uh, which crosses will I bear? And if that's a very, very short list, you're probably doing it wrong. I was going to go uh, along the same lines as Todd, because um, we always talk about uh, the hills you're willing to die on, the crosses you're willing to bear. Those are the things that say the most about you, but... Um, I, I definitely think both of those are questions you should continually ask yourself if you are a Christian. Question three, if you could design and put on any concert you wanted, what would be the opening acts and what would be the main show? Oh, boy, I don't know. I'm not a big concert guy in general. Uh, you know, just... I'm very select where that is concerned. Just the environment is, yeah. I've never been to a non-Christian concert before, so I, I guess I don't know what I'm talking about here. What have you seen? I've seen Page and Plant, Hootie and the Blowfish, um, um, Mercy Me, Casting Crowns, uh, Michael W. Smith. Great Christmas concert, by the way. Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant. I've seen a couple of their Christmas concerts. I've seen... Um, oh, man. And there's a couple of other pop music concerts I've seen whose names I can't remember now. You know, 80s, 90s bands kind of a thing. Probably that time of my life ha- is a bit fuzzy. It's a bit hazy. <laughs> so I don't remember it all. But I seem to recall there might have been a Stone Temple Pilots in there somewhere. Maybe. <laughs> so I yield the balance of my time, Todd. Go so ahead. which one, does one stand out more than the other, or did we just try the fact that you wonder whether you were there, that probably stands out more than anything Yeah, else. I mean, um, I would say the best ones, the best Christian music concert I saw was Casting Crowns. I thought they were really good. Really good. Um... 
the one the 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 pop music concert I've got the most memory of is Page and Plant. I've talked about it before. I uh, saw him up at Hilton Coliseum in Ames, and uh, um, the the encore is a, was made the hair in the back of my neck stand up. They had the local symphony orchestra playing back up to Kashmir, and it was incredible. I think I've seen quite a few concerts. Uh, favorite in particular though was the uh, uh elton john and billy joel together traveling and and the times when they were both out on the stage together they were playing each other's songs uh that the special just two two maestros of that craft and in an age that is you know moved moved on to a, a, a different genre of music uh these guys are just old school old school musicians I realized something that um, about my musical taste that has been years in the making. I'm into French electronic music. So you got to stop saying this stuff out loud, Phoenix man. Phoenix and the M83 open for Daft Punk. Bark, bark, meow, meow. <laughs> Dance with me, purple cow. That kind of crap. No. I hate that stuff. <laughs> You're listening to Steve Dace. is a force of nature. One of the most powerful storms ever to hit land. The Steve Day Show. I'm something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. It is the nightly buzz, that time of the evening, when our producer Aaron reports back after checking out what's trending on social media as well as your water coolers with the buzz. He's got those headlines. We've got the hot takes in response. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Story one, Connor Brewer is fiercely loyal to his college football team, but he's also fiercely loyal to the United States of America. So when the Millican University football team decided to protest the national anthem by remaining inside the locker room instead of on the sidelines, Connor was faced with a decision. Would he join his teammates in their university-approved safe space, or would he stand on the sidelines and honor America? Well, Connor chose to stand alone and declined to be interviewed out of respect for his coaches and his team. I'll let you take this one first. Well, courage on multiple levels. Again, I, it never fails to amaze me. The older I get, the certain, the more certain I become of just how cowardice runs rampant everywhere under the guise of, well, it's just not done that way, or these are the rules. This guy just said, you know what, I got to stand. He went out there alone. He didn't care about the eyeballs on him. Uh, God bless him for that. And then to to have the the integrity to say, you know what, this is enough. I'm not going to go, you know, on some crazy rant. A.K.A. Colin Kaepernick. Now, it would have been fine if he'd said something principled and tasteful and all, all that stuff, too. But again, to manage to dignify his teammates in the process of all this, uh, th- this is a man among uh, boys. That's why I gave it to you. I knew you'd hit it out of the park. Second, what he just said. 
Next story, the Big 12 University presidents concluded on Monday that they will not be adding any new members, ending a three-month expansion exploration with a decision that the league is better off with its current 10 members for now. One event that shifted the tenor of expansion exploration came early in August when FoxSports.com wrote an article indicating the potential backlash from the LGBT community against BYU if the Cougars were admitted. Brigham Young was the prohibitive favorite to join the league, and when it became politically untenable to make the school, which is owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the entire tenor of expansion changed. I'll let you handle the uh, the BYU angle to this, because and the the, the clear recriminations about this being uh, the political and and religious freedom aspects of of that angle. I'll I'll tackle the big part of it here. Um, I told you guys, I think I predicted when this came up, they would not expand. I think this was all a ploy to see if they could get more blood out of the turnip from the networks. See if the, cause the, the networks were going to have to pay, I think it was, what's 25 million a team that they brought in. Yeah, it was 23, okay. 25, something like and that. And so I think this was an attempt to get the networks who, who don't believe there's enough TV eyes in, in the big 12 region to form its own TV network. So for the big 12 to try to get more rights fees for its game broadcasts to be competitive with the other leagues that do have their own networks now. And the networks realized we don't have to do that. So they didn't. And so the the Big 12 tried to play a game of poker, particularly David Boren, uh, the president of Oklahoma University, who's driving a lot of this. Former U.S. senator and governor, he tried to play a game of poker with the networks and he lost. So they walked away yesterday after they went through this dog and pony show where 19 schools put money on the table to make these presentations and everything else. And, and walked away realizing they got, they, they got called with a do seven offsuit. Okay, so now they will do the walk of shame and leave the poker table. The big story out of this last night is not that there isn't going to be expansion. It's that there wasn't an, ex, an extension of what's called the grant and rights. The grant and rights is what keeps these conferences together because what it says is even if you leave to go to another network, your TV rights money stays with us. Kind of like a non-compete. If you guys, you know, if you leave a company and there's a non-compete in place, yeah, you can quit, but it's the Hotel California. You can check in anytime you like, but you can never leave until that non-compete expires. That's what the grant and aid does, or the grant and rights does. Since the grant and rights was not extended, what that tells you is that by 2025, when this league's current TV contract expires, it will cease to exist. Oklahoma and Oklahoma State will go somewhere. Texas will go somewhere. They might go to the same place, but I doubt it. I think Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are going to go someplace separate from Texas. And then what happens with the other eight schools? I don't know. I think it's possible we end up with four 16-team super conferences. I also think it's possible that we don't. I also think it's possible that those those non-Power 5 conference, which would then be Power 4, team, that pool of teams gets bigger. And like an Iowa State is in there, and a Kansas State is in there, okay? And a Baylor is in there. Um, because a league like the Big Ten says, well, if the cost of taking Texas is we have to take Kansas State or Iowa State, maybe we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we do. I don't know. But, but, I, but either way, I don't think there will be a Big 12 conference a decade from now. When you combine BYU with Colin Kaepernick with the uh, All-Star, NBA All-Star game moving from uh, North Carolina and then the special s- snowflake uh, safe space uh, life that everybody's living, we, we are getting very, very close where they just there are some colleges that are going to flat out not be willing to play BYU, Notre Dame, 
you know, Christian schools of any stripe at all. It is going to be a, a wholesale civil war against them. And either they, they I mean, they're going to try to turn them into leper colonies where they all have to play against themselves. Otherwise, they won't be playing at all. Next story, let's take a look at the box offices. We didn't have Mike Woody in last Friday. Um, wanted to get to this last night. The accountant in its first week took home uh, first place at the box office, raked in almost $25 million. A girl on the train in... Which its, isn't really that great for a new movie in this day and age, yeah. by the way. It's pretty, pretty mediocre. Yeah. Um, a girl on the train was number two, and that is in its second week. Kevin Hart, what now? That's its first week, finished in third place. And then all the way down in 11th place, Max Steel. Evidently, it's some superhero movie, but it's like Mattel. It's not even DC or Marvel. Um, I'm, again, there's just, I'm looking at this top 10, and there's just really nothing in here that's, that screams out, like, come see me. I asked this question on three questions a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. Has it been a disappointing year for movies? I think it has been. I think it has been overall. Um, you know, now a lot more of the plot-driven kinds of films are what will come out now between, you know, first of November and the end of the year. You'll still have a couple of big event films. We get Star Wars: Rogue One. You get the new Harry Potter prequel franchise that begins with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and those will be huge hits. We'll see though if they're good movies. They'll be big hits, but are they actually good movies? And then you'll get more of your kind of plot, story-driven films this time of year, too, as people get geared up for awards season starting in January. But so far, yeah, I still maintain the two best movies I have seen this year are Eye in the Sky and Free State of Jones. In fact, I think they're way better than any other movies I've seen so far this year. I think I've said this before. You're dealing with a transition from cinema to television in terms of uh, great storytelling. When you can do things like uh, Breaking Bad, Battlestar Galactica, Lost, and you know, online on demand. Uh, it, it's there's great stuff out there, and it's going to stay this way. Movies have a hard road to hoe. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. When you're upsetting everyone, you know you're doing it right. You are human tennis elbow. You are a pizza burn on the roof of the world's mouth. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Ed Conard is here with us. He's with the American Enterprise Institute. He's got a new book out. The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. And Ed, we want to welcome you to the show tonight, brother. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me, Steve. So, Ed, my understanding is income inequality has gotten a bad rap. (laughs) Well, that's certainly the case. I think they're blamed for the uh, slow growth of the middle and working class, which is uh, one of the myths that I try to dispel in the book. And those myths need to be dispelled. Why? Uh, I think they lead to bad policy that slow uh, that slow middle and working class wages even uh, even further. We've seen slow growth for the last uh, seven years coming out of the financial crisis, uh, very atypical relative to what we've been able to achieve in the past. If if you look at the U.S. over since say 1980, we have been able to achieve twice 
the employment growth of Germany and uh, France three times faster than Japan at uh, median household wages, which are 15 to uh, to 30 percent higher. We've achieved that because we have a deep pool of properly trained uh, talent taking more entrepreneurial risk than, than those economies because the payoffs for risk-taking in the U.S. are substantially higher than they are in the rest of the world. And our most talented workers are working in uh, companies and uh, communities of experts like Silicon Valley, which make them which make them way more productive than they are in the rest of the world. And those those institutional capabilities are the byproduct of uh, entrepreneurial risk taking that's occurred in the U.S. that we really haven't seen. Uh, we haven't seen it at the same level in other high wage economies with more equally distributed incomes. So what you're telling us is when there's a meritocracy and people are placed in an environment where they are incentivized to gamble on their God-given potential, that creates a rising tide that lifts all boats. When mediocrity, uh, or less than that, is incentivized, the exact opposite happens. I think that's definitely true, but I would say a second thing happens as well, which is not only do those workers work hard and take more risks, but slowly over time, that risk-taking creates companies uh, like Google and Facebook would be the most obvious ones that give America's workforce more valuable on-the-job training. And that gives our, makes our workers more productive. The second thing that happens is those workers coalesce into communities of experts like Silicon Valley, which also make them more productive. I mean, imagine sitting in Greece, you're trying to come up with the next Internet idea. What's the probability that you've actually got a good idea and you're going to be successful? As opposed to being working at, say, Google, you're likely to have a eureka moment and have a network of people that can help you implement it. It's logical to take more risk because there's much higher payoffs and a much higher probability of success. And so it's not only the individual who gets motivated, but institutional capabilities grow slowly over time to the point where today... Europe is never going to be able to grow as fast as the U.S. Uh, simply by cutting its taxes because it doesn't, it hasn't grown those institutional capabilities over the last 30 years. Same with Japan; they're sort of stuck back in the in the manufacturing past, which is a much slower uh, growth path. One of the things I enjoy doing in my spare time, when my schedule allows it, is appearing on panels on MSNBC uh, because. Unlike a lot of conservatives that go on a network like that, I'm actually one. And so I'll actually defend like the crazy stuff we claim to believe in. And during the 2012 election, we were having this massive debate uh, at about uh, income inequality. And I, I responded to the panel by asking them all a simple question. Everybody on this panel or watching, uh, watching us this afternoon, raise your hands if you've ever gotten a job from a poor person. Go. And I, I noticed no hands went up. And I said, well, explain to me how we're going to create more jobs by punitively punishing the only human beings with the means by which to create them for us. Nobody had an answer for that one, Ed. Well, I do think, I think, you know, ironically, I think back in grade school, you learn about trickle down, which I think is a, is a way to make everybody uh, uh, liberal, I guess, from a very young age. But I, I, the point that you're making is really that people succeed through trickle up which is you have to create about $5 of value for every dollar that you capture yourself. And so in order for a person to be able to uh, get to the highest end of the wage scale, to start companies that end up being successful, 
they have to create enormous amount of value for everybody else before they end up with a dollar of income that they can be taxed on. You know, I think that's at least five to one. It's probably more like 20 to one. In my first book, I said, uh, let's assume it's five to one, but it's probably 20 to one. But for the sake of argument, nobody's going to argue with five to one. And the New York Times said that my argument depended on 20 to one. And they got a liberal economist who said, oh, no, 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 it's five to one. (laughs) So... All right, hold it right there. I want to continue this conversation. When we come back, Ed Conard from the American Enterprise Institute is here about his new book, The Upside of Inequality. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Helping to define the modern-day New Age America. We're all kind of... Crazy Tom Banana Pants. It's Steve Dace. Back here on the Salem Radio Network, this is the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Ed Conard from the American Enterprise Institute is our guest. He's got a new book out, The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. We have managed to create something that really in the post-industrial revolution and revolution West that really never existed throughout human history, uh, Ed, as you well know, which is a middle class. And, and, and that's what's relieved a lot of the tensions between the haves and the have-nots that have ruined or wrecked a lot of uh, previous uh, attempts at enlightened societies before us. It, what I hear you making, the argument I hear you making in your, in, in your book is... That if we don't provide incentives for people to do better than others, to be better, to monetize something uh, superior to a competitor, to maximize their God-given potential, then we're actually going to revert back to the system of economics that that existed largely throughout human history, whether that was under mercantilism, feudalism, um, monarchy, etc., which is largely two classes, a haves and a haves-not. Uh, is that essentially the basis of the argument you're making? Well, that's certainly a, a major component of it in the chapter about do incentives matter. I would certainly argue that, yes, incentives matter and that success is earned. But I do think we have to ask the question of what's happening. Why is the middle class income slowing, growing more slowly than the economy? And I tell the following story, which I think is important. I used to be a manufacturing engineer at Ford. We moved the plant to Mexico. And we tell the workers, don't worry, the entrepreneurs are coming, they're going to compete with each other and, and drive your wages back up to where they were. But that worker sees the entrepreneur move to California and outsource his blue-collar work to China, and he sees the engineers building products and factories for Mexican workers, and he says, where's the entrepreneur who's coming to put me back to work and to drive my wages up? And the argument I make in the book is that in this uh, in information-based economy, uh, savings is no longer the constraint. Capital is no longer the constraint to growth. The two things that matter most are talent, properly trained talent, and risk-taking, entrepreneurial risk-taking. And when you have a shortage of talented risk-takers, I think it will affect the uh, potential growth of the middle class because talented workers can work on three different things. They can create innovation like iPhones that make everybody more prosperous. They can also become doctors and dentists, which largely keep the gears moving. But the third thing they can do is organize unskilled workers into companies that serve customers more effectively than other 
competitors and that uh, have higher productivity for those workers and make them more effective at dealing with customers. And that's really the thing today that drives up the wages of our middle and working class. And that's one of the things I think we have to to focus on. What you see in the Midwest is a brain drain of people moving out to the coast and also working uh, on behalf of offshore workers instead of our own uh, middle-class citizens. I was looking at some research at about a year ago that showed several states, I can't remember the total, it might have been eight, somewhere between eight and 11, several states, their largest industry is government. Is that bad? Well, I don't think government creates anything for the most part. I mean, I, I suppose in the in the sense of, uh, you know, our teachers are certainly creating things when they work for, for such. But, you know, if you look at the world from my perspective, if the government consumes the talent and it consumes, uh, takes risks by borrowing a lot of money, then the private sector is not going to use those same resources because they get crowded out. Who do you think is more effective at creating value? Do you think it's the private sector or the public sector? When you look at how resources are allocated in the private sector, uh, people are running a lot of experiments. Things are failing. They don't really know what's going to work. And then, voila, one out of 100, one out of 1,000 works. And those move forward. And then someone tries it again and again and again. In government, it works in exactly the opposite way, which is somebody thinks they have a good idea. They implement it on a very large scale. There's no competition to really compare it to alternatives. And so it, it lives on and on in its less than optimal form, it's hard for me to believe that allocating more money to the public sector is going to make the economy grow faster relative to having more money in the private sector. Ed Conard, the American Enterprise Institute, his new book, The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. Ed, thanks for joining us tonight, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So what do you guys think? Is that, you know, should we go out there and, and I mean, obviously, his title, the title is Snarky. And I and I get that. I don't think he would advise us to go out there and argue for income inequality, uh, but to to point out that the greatest way to generate inequality is to try and make everybody equal, in the sense not of their value and dignity as human beings, but in terms of their ability and potential from a profitability and monet, monetizing ability standpoint. Well, Mike Rowe has made this argument, just taking it from a different angle, how we've devalued. Uh, the skilled trades uh, and, and therefore a lot of people who could have gotten in and thrived and prospered and made a very decent living the top end of that living may not be high as another track but it's still of uh, living that you can uh, raise a family on and, and do well but we do value it so they end up in a lane that their god-given talents don't belong and they've been pushed there by uh, progressive propaganda. Everybody's got to go to college. And therefore, uh, instead of just appreciating the different talents, and yes, the talents are going to come with some level inequality. And that inequality, by the way, is benign. There's nothing wrong with it. We end up with the inequality that we have, moral inequality, where up is down, down is up, chaos is ensuing, and therefore we can't, uh, we we don't have the ability to uh, ultimately the thing that that breaks because of that, in part, is the core of any society. The family, because it strains under the pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think instead of, instead of investing time in our talents or what abilities that we have, 
um, to make more out of them. Uh, I think a lot of people, and this is obvious um, when you see the, the rate of college and student loan debt, it's obvious that instead of investing into our own talents, the ones that we do have, we have bought the lie, as you noted, Todd, that we have to go to college or um, I can do things um, like, uh, you know, I can, uh, even if there's not a big market for them, I, I can study these things and go into deep de- debt to study certain things. And that's just, I mean, that's just not the way the world works sometimes. And so that's, I think that's basically the, uh, that, that, that's the place we're in right now where a lot of people are very educated, but educated in areas that there's not a huge market for. We'll come back and wrap up tonight's show in just a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. He's trying to keep us all together because, well, the liberals do it. See what you call insanity? We call solidarity. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here to wrap it up on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. So we've come to the end of tonight's show. Gentlemen, what, if anything, have you learned this evening? I learned that um, Ron Paul was uh, four years too early. Uh, We've heard from, again, decent men, capable men, but men by any measure that this is not their time. They are simply being a thrust in, into a time because uh, the the third parties in general were not prepared for this moment. Remarkably, you'd think that they would absolutely uh, early on in this process uh, be primed uh, to take advantage of such a situation. But nothing could be uh, further from the truth. So yeah, the best we can do is vote our conscience, which is 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 never a bad thing. Uh, but I don't know. I haven't heard anything that's got me thinking any differently about these men than I was thinking before. Hmm. Tough crowd, Aaron. Your thoughts? Yeah, not not as as tough as as Todd. But high standards are always a good thing, as we can see from this election. Um, you know, for me right now, if if somebody were to ask me, and since both of you have kind of volunteered where you're at um, as far as who you're down to voting for. Um, I'm down to um, I think McMullen and um, and and writing in Judge Judge Roy Moore. Um, I, I, I part of me wants to vote for McMullen just because it seems like he he's kind of the a fresh face uh, for the third party. But that's not you know those those aren't the things that that you want to vote for. Um, and as far as just being a um, a protest vote or a symbolic vote, you know, Judge Roy Moore checks all of those boxes. So um, it's, I mean, it's nothing against Daryl Castle. Again, he's a he's a fine, um, upstanding man. Uh, it's just that's that's where I'm down to at uh, at this moment. Todd, tell me, tell me what one of these third party candidates could have been to have won over your symbolic vote. I need to see a capacity 
uh, like I already mentioned about uh, Judge Roy Moore, but th- that we believe to be the case uh, with Ted Cruz and obviously was the case in many respects. When he called out Mitch McConnell and just flat out called him a liar, you have to be willing to say that the emperor has no clothes. You, you, will, you have to refuse to make any sort of compromise where you are constantly betting on the come and getting nothing. You need to be wise as serpents. Uh, Judge Roy Marr has been willing to play high-stakes poker. This is a time of high-stakes poker. I, I need to believe that that person is capable of that, has demonstrated that. I, I don't know that about these men, and they had an opportunity to tell me, and I didn't get it. In other words, you are, you're not looking for a safe landing spot. No. You know, you're looking for a paradigm shift. Yes. That'll do it for tonight, John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.